Welcome to Grief Recovery Now podcast. I'm your host, Charlene Gorzella, your grief recovery specialist. This podcast is being produced just for you, someone who has been challenged and heartbroken over a significant and devastating loss, death, divorce, sudden life change, or the many other ways we experience grief. You will be taken on a conversational journey with me and some special guests who have come out the other side of grief and committed to small, powerful, and courageous steps that made all the difference in their lives for the better. I want to instill in you on what is possible, that joy, hope, peace, and happiness is closer than you think. While your life is forever changed, you can have a beautiful new outlook on your relationships and loss with a sense of completion that goes deep in your soul. Ready, set, now. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. This is Charlene Gorzella, your host for Grief Recovery Now podcast. So excited you're here today and enthusiastic. And when I say enthusiastic, it means I'm enthused with this podcast. I'm so happy this was created, even though I think it was my idea, but I feel like something was downloaded in me about two years ago to do this podcast. And you know what? I, at this time in my life, I'm in the life of service. So I'm here to serve you and the community of the world on the grief recovery movement, I would like to call it. I'm not the only one doing this, but I hear about it more and more. And I'm so happy about that. And people think grief is such a sad thing. There is sadness. Grief is a very sacred way of being. It's an appropriate response to loss of all kinds. So I'm here to talk about that it is a sacred space. I don't mean religious space or spiritual space. I mean in a human space, on a higher consciousness space. There are some gifts in grief. And that's why I want to help people recover, for lack of a better word, to be with it in a way of fullness, not so much in a way of loss, even though loss is involved. The next step into recovery is to be in, how can I say, in the fullness of your life. That's what I think recovery is. Not forgetting about the person, place, or thing, whether they're a loved one or a not-so-loved one, but be able to live your life in a beautiful way, whatever that looks like to you. And the uniqueness of your very own experience is just like a fingerprint. So just know, that's why I always talk to a lot of different people. I am a grief recovery method specialist, but there's all kinds of road to get to it. And I'd love for you to try the grief recovery method because it's a evidence-based program, which doesn't take years. There's a program that is like a seven week and an eight week, and I'm not trying to sell anything, but I just want you to know that um, help is out there if you're looking for it. Okay. So we have a portion of this podcast that's called Off the Cuff with Charlene. And today I thought I'd talk about gratitude. I'm doing these quiet times of gratitude. And we hear about it all over the place. And there is a reason why. There is a science and there's a benefit emotionally, intellectually, I would say neuropathway wise, and the power that gratitude is, especially in grief. It could be short-term grief, like something just happened, job, parent passes away or dies. I like to be straight to the point and a child or which is devastating, devastating. So I am not saying be grateful about someone dying. I'm just saying the experience that you have with that relationship, person, place or thing. And so I thought about gratitude for myself. I can only speak about my experience. My parents died. My dad died when I was 16 of a heart attack, sudden heart attack. And at that time, I was this young person, just my friends were more important than my father was. And I never got a chance to get to know him. And many of the podcast listeners who listen to all the podcasts know this story. And then I lost my mother at 29. A friend of mine committed suicide. And I lost someone who I thought I was going to have a future with on all different levels, had children with, marry our people and just 
have our friendship for the rest of our lives. At that time when she died, I was in my 30s. And I'm not thinking about where I am today, which is at 64. And so where gratitude fits in, especially with my parents and my friend who committed suicide, was I am part of their legacy and they are a part of mine. And it also helps me. I'm grateful. It gave me the opportunity and the experience to realize all we have is today. We never know what's going to happen or who we lost. It's a part of life. They said, you know, taxes and death. That's two things we could be sure of, right? Or loss. And another thing I try to talk to people about is like we are taught, at least I was taught on how to get, how to get money to pay the bills, how to get friendship so I could be happy. But we're never taught about loss. At least I wasn't. So loss is a natural thing that happens in life. And I want to teach people how to lose and also how not to have to recover from grief or loss, how to not have to do the coulda, shoulda, wouldas. We're human. We're going to have that. I wish I did this. I wish I did that. I wish I would have said goodbye. I wish we didn't have that argument beforehand. Those things are just part of the human condition. And I think we can grow. I'm grateful that I had those experiences because I learned from them. And today I'm grateful for them. I'm not crying over them anymore. I'm grateful that I've had the experience is that now the people I do love or my profession I do love, I don't take anything for granted. At least I do my best not to. So try a gratitude list. And what happens is sometimes we're in such despair, which be there wherever you are. I say be where you are. But if you're going down the rabbit hole in isolation, if you haven't left your house for six months, I'm talking to you who's doing that, who isolates for their go-to position because they feel comfortable, who's been watching TV for a bunch of um, Games of Thrones, they're watching all four seasons in two days or something like that. There's something you have to look at. And I'm not saying you're wrong, but it's an opportunity to really look at What is going on? It takes courage. It takes bravery. And sometimes you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. Or sometimes you need someone like me to say, just get up, do contrary action. Even if you think your ass is going to fall off, call and reach for help. Google help. Call me or just contact me through Facebook or Instagram and leave me a message. You have my full name and all that. And go to the Grief Recovery Now private group. Message me, do whatever you need to do, or call a trusted friend that will be there to help you. Also, later on, I promise you, you will be grateful for that experience because I believe you're going to rise above it. But you got to do the work. Discovery is not recovery. You got to show up and do the work and be grateful. Maybe go, you know, I'm so glad I did that work. I didn't want to. I, in every fiber of my being, I didn't want to get help or get more help, do contrary action because there's our head who leads us, but then there's our heart and let's combine the logic or not the logic so much, but a heart can speak through our words. And I've done this before. I had a friend who asked me out to dinner. I had a bad back for like a week and I got comfortable with the warming pad and watching TV. She called me, want to go to dinner on a walk? And I go, my mind was saying, no, very loud. But something, I believe it was my heart, said, yes, I will meet you. And I'm so glad I showed up for it. It was hard. It sounds simple, but it was hard. So I'm grateful for that experience and to recognize it. So I hope you have an experience like that. And let us know if anything like that, this helped, this off the cuff with Charlene. And and you know, do it. I'm just about to say try. Don't try, do. So now we're thank you so much for listening. And we're gonna go to our speaker portion of the podcast. But first, I am going to tell you a little bit about Michael Gersh. Michael Gersh is a survivor of a drunk driving crash that killed his mother and nearly himself when he was eight weeks old. Despite breaking almost all his bones in the crash, he went on to become a collegiate swimmer, comedian, speaker, author, college educator, and photographer. 
Raised in Miami, Florida, he attended Ashland University on a swimming scholarship where he earned a degree in communications. Michael earned his master's degree in higher education administration from the University of Akron. He has been at Kent State University for 21 years and is the senior advisor to for the College of Aeronautics and Engineering. With over 25 years experience on stage as a comedian and speaker, Michael has presented his programs at schools, colleges, military bases, and a TEDx talk. It's awesome, by the way, so look him up. He uses humor, audience participation, and a story for an educational and inspirational message. His topics include impaired driving prevention, alcohol abuse, diversity, student-athlete success, and mental health grief. In 2015, he founded the Magic of Life Foundation, a nonprofit organization that helps his mission in eliminating impaired driving, making communities safer, and empowering people to make better choices in life. In 2019, he published the memoir, The Magic of Life, a son's story after tragedy, grief, and a speedo. <laughs> Wonder what's that about? Get his book. And help me welcome Michael. Michael, how are you today? I'm doing awesome. I uh, today I did a self care day. I uh, got a massage. I celebrated National Pretzel Day. I took a nap. I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing all right. And and your uh, corner discussion really hit me today because I am that person who probably needs to do more. Get off the couch at times. Even though like this weekend I went biking and then. My leg said you should have stayed on the couch, but uh, but yeah, it it's always good to have that reminder because of grief and and getting out of that comfort zone, and I I need to hear that. So thank you for that. You are so welcome. I really appreciate that. And what's great? No, you can't see him on the podcast unless you look at the little snackables that go out, but because podcasts are audio. But in the back of his, of Michael's wall, where he's, you know, talking on this Zoom call, is he has enjoy life. So it's great. I love that when people put things that it helps remind you to enjoy life. And you have pictures of people enjoying. Is that you back there? Yeah, my, my brother got me this little photograph collage. So every couple of months, I will change out the picture. So there's me, my family, my, my dad from graduation. Me, the first time I ever did stand up. Me and one of my best friends, we were thumb wrestling in the White House uh, after oh. a Medal of Honor ceremony because <laughs> we're kids and <laughs> we were started. We were in the blue room. And who was we the president at the time? Uh, Obama was. Oh that wow, that's great! So really oh my cool. god! And then a sunset in or sunrise in uh, Manio and another cool place in, in Ohio called Hawken Hills. So uh, yeah, I, I change them out because it's right. You enjoy life and you know, photographs should be printed instead of just always on the phone. So even at home, I have about eight, eight by 11 frames. So I'll change those out every few months also. That's wonderful. Now, would you suggest our listeners do something like that? Get creative to... Sure, anything that helps them you know, get through grief or try to be motivated as, as you said, to do something right. And to get through that process, because it definitely helps in, you know, in terms of memories or special times you may have had with someone. And, and I think it puts a smile on your face, if anything else. Yes. And it's not denying what you're feeling. Sometimes you could feel things simultaneously or one minute you're feeling one way and the next minute you're not. It's like the waves of grief too, especially if it's very, very fresh. And I'm not saying, you know, fresh could be in one day to six months or a year, depending on the situation or how you're receiving it. So, well, thank you for that. I think it's great. So, Michael, as I said, it's what it was like, what happened, what it's like today. Tell us, you're on an incredible journey. And can you talk a little bit about, first, I'd like to start with the family. Tell me about your life. Yeah, it's been very interesting. I I guess I was born into grief uh, almost after eight weeks. uh, My father was driving us home from Long Island, and we lived uh, about an hour or so away from Brooklyn. So we were at an intersection about less than a mile away from our house. 
And uh, my brother was in the back seat sleeping, not wearing his seatbelt because it was the 70s. We couldn't find our seatbelts in the 70s anyway. And my mom was next to my dad in the front middle seat. And I was next to my mom in a little baby carrier. And as our light turned green and my father started to go through the intersection, a drunk driver plowed through the intersection and T-boned the car. And the force of the impact was so great, it woke up the neighbors from around the intersection. And it also pushed our car into a telephone pole and it's the car all the way up to the dashboard. When the first responders arrived, they found my father, my brother, and my mom. They didn't, they didn't find me. Uh, they didn't even know I was in the car until my aunt, uh, my mom's sister, my Aunt Arlene, her brother-in-law lived around the intersection and knew someone was missing, which, which, which was me. And about 15 minutes later, I was found between the door and the dash of the car. And then the four of us were taken to the same hospital. My mom was taken into surgery. My brother didn't have a scratch on him. Uh, my dad had to get stitches on his face from the windshield. And, and as you alluded to in, in, in the introduction, nearly every bone in my body was broken. My skull was fractured. I was life flighted to another hospital. My aunt Sue, my brother's sister, lost count of how many blood transfusions I received to, to stay alive. And you were eight weeks old. I was eight weeks, yeah. And, and how many pounds would you be? At eight like weeks? 15 pounds or something? I guess so. That's a healthy size turkey for Thanksgiving. Yeah, I'd say that. That's uh, that's pretty good. A 15 pounder, I guess, right? I mean, I never, you know what? It's a good question. I never even thought about that. But you know how, and I was all cartilage because you know, your bones aren't formed that suddenly as an infant. And the doctors were telling my dad, we don't know if your son's going to live or, or die. And so this is what my, so what's my father going through? I could die. My, his wife, you know, my mom's in surgery, one alone. One of those alone is bad enough for one person, but you know, my dad's 30 and he has to go through two of those you know, at once. And you know, the, I had to go to the, and, and my dad, and my mom passed away the morning of the, of the, next, the next morning, the, the 20th mm-hmm. of September. And I had to go back to the hospital for months afterwards, make sure I didn't have any brain damage. And, and I'm fine, really. Uh, so, but I, even when I had to go to speech therapy, we didn't know if it was due to any brain injury suffered in the car crash or just normal childhood pains. But I grew up to be a competitive swimmer, good enough to get a, a scholarship. And I'm 51 now. So the journey of, of grief started at that point in time. And even as a kid, you know, it hits you. Uh, and I grew up in, in the 70s and 80s where mental health and grief probably wasn't talked about, but everyone thought I was just you know, a normal childhood kid, but you, here's a different life. Because in every school form for mother's name was deceased. And you know, no one asks why, no one whatever. And how do you even explain that as a kid? I mean, how do you process that? You don't. You're just too busy playing with Star Wars toys and Spider-Man. And, and you know, once I got into magic and, and then we were swimming. So it was just normal childhood. And even though my mom died, my brother and I were raised by a, a woman named Dolly, who's Jamaican. And she answered an ad my grandmother put in the newspaper for part-time help back after the car crash. So the car crash happened in September of 1970. My grandmother put an ad in, in the newspaper around late October, early November. And what was supposed to be a part-time job turned into a lifetime because she raised me and my brother with my father. So she stepped into this motherhood role that no one would have expected. You know, when she, when her time was up in three years, she was supposed to go back to Jamaica, but my, but she was already part of the family. So my grandparents sponsored her to stay or kidnapped her. I'm not, I'm not too sure which one's which if, if they kidnapped her or not to stay, but here was a remarkable woman that sacrificed her life and dreams to be a nurse to stay with us. And mm. you don't see that every day. No. Uh, and can you, can you go back to before the accident? And even though you were eight weeks, what did you hear about your family? Like from your brother, what was childhood like? How old was your brother again? My brother was three. Three. So they're yeah. very young. So through relatives and your dad, if he even talked about it. My dad was not a talker about that. I mean, he would say when you would ask, and that was tough growing up because you didn't know what to ask. And you always wanted, I always wanted my dad to, to volunteer those type of things, right? Because that's, that's what you want. Not realizing how much pain he was for his entire life, you know, never getting over it. But my parents, they, they, they lived in a small apartment for a while and then they built a house in Spring Valley. 
So that typical 70s family, you know, building their house together for for each, you know, for one another and, you know, to raise a family. So my dad worked, he, he was a, a controller. My mom was a school teacher and uh, she loved to plant flowers in the backyard. And, you know, they were just a young couple starting out. They both loved to dance. My dad loved his music, like Pete Fountain and Pavarotti and, you know, those type of things. And, you know, typical, you know, Brooklyn kids moving to the suburbs of uh, Spring Valley. And they met in college. My dad was a school photographer at NYU and he was shooting a school dance and the only person looking at him in the photo or one of the photos was my mom. So I have that on, on a shelf and you can clearly see, and I think it's in, and I think it's in the book too, that, that picture of everyone's dancing, but here's this one woman looking at the photographer. So my dad went up to find out who it was and, and that's how they met. So I on stage I say she my dad stalked my mom to find out who it was because <laughs> um, you know back then, but it's a really cool romantic story of of how they met. And my dad was thirty, my mom was was uh, when they married. No, when they married, she was twenty two. In fact, my aunt recently gave me a letter he wrote to his new in laws the second day of their honeymoon. Explain, you know, writing out like the trip details, the flight, thanking them, and all this type of stuff. And I cried when when I read it. I mean, how could I not? And I never saw anything like that before. And it was just a really powerful thing going. And those are the things you wish you heard about as a kid and growing up. And Mm -hmm. and as you know, people who are in that much pain just can't find the words, especially men especially back then because my dad never went to counseling. She was 28 when she died. My dad was 30 and, you know, 70s again. I mean, no one, no, no man was going to go to therapy back then or talk about it. And, you know, today we're doing a better job about that. But if he got grief counseling and those type of things, I think it would have made my life easier too, because it was never talked about growing up. It was just next day. Yeah. Nobody was encouraged. It was like, leave them alone. All the myths that go with grief. Mm-hmm. It's, it's incredible how we're affected by it when it is not talked about, when grieving wasn't really allowed. Okay, get over it. Not talked about. Don't tell the children or I'm afraid I'll die. You know, they don't know how to, they didn't. And it probably still happens. People just didn't talk about it. Let's move on. Let's pull up mm-hmm. our bootstraps and let's move on. And it's not a great place to be because I always say people walk in these filters of grief and we're going to talk about you, but how did your dad walk through it? How was the long-term effect? You know, like the day-to-day back, not talking, what kind of man did he become? That's a very good question because Dolly told me that even in those days, no one wanted to talk about my mom. It was never allowed. Right. It was just just what you said, kind of brush underneath the carpet and just kind of continue. So my dad did the best he could with us. I mean, kind, loving man um, t- till the end and did what he could for me and my brother. I mean, I know without Dolly in that house, I, I shudder to think how we would have turned out because he was when he passed away in 2018. I was hearing stories about him and I saw pictures of him as a young man. I go, who was that guy? I wanted to know him because. You know, probably a little bit more laughter to him and zest for life, but he lost his soulmate and never recovered. Even though him and Dolly formed a relationship over time, it still wasn't the same as that woman that he saw in that picture. And on December 19th, like 2012, after one of his hospital stays, he sent me and my brother an email saying, even to that day, it was still too hard to talk about. And that would have been their 48th wedding anniversary. So he, I don't think he ever fully recovered from that because as kids, he went to work, put them, you know, made money for us, swim practice. He was a referee for us. He even disqualified me once or twice, which I thought was cruel as a father. <laughs> um, you shouldn't do that to your own kid. Uh, so he disqualified you. Yeah. Mean. He was, he was, you know what? He was a mean father. Uh, <laughs> but he, he raised us because he knew what his job was, was to look after me and my brother. And, and then, and he did his best even while he was grieving, but he could never express that to us. And I wish he could have, because I think it could have helped me and my brother. 
When my dad went to work in the early days after the car crash, my brother would scream and cry because he would think my dad's never going to come home, just like mom didn't come home. So as a three-year-old, my brother had a much harder time with it than I did because to me, I was eight weeks old, no memory of the car crash. I was used to, you know, Dolly already. My brother had a harder time transitioning to her because it was like, you're not the boss of me. Who are you? And with my brother and my dad going to work, sometimes they they woke him up. Sometimes, you know, they didn't. So they had to try different things until he adjusted to my dad going to work and coming home. So me, it was just a normal way to kind of grow up with, without my mom. But yet I always knew something was missing. You know, the word mom isn't in my own vocabulary because it's just one of those sacred words that I never expressed. And you know, never having the chance to run home from school and say, hey, mom, look what I drew for you. Or, hey, or, hey mom, you know, what's for dinner? Or, hey, mom, I love you. All because of a drunk driver. There's a lot of anger in that part because being robbed from that privilege, I guess you could say. Again, not taken away from having Dolly in my life because, you know, mother, but it, it's sort of different too yes. uh, in terms of that. So Yeah, you have, it's a ripple effects when you're not, getting resolved from the unresolved and the incomplete and just the sharing of the soul and the memories. And sometimes even when the person's gone, you share the memories It keeps them alive a little bit. So you're not totally lost Mm -hmm. and you change. And then your brother, he was uh, over three months. It all started. He still had a recollection of your mom and then your dad never got to really, who knows what he did behind closed doors, but it shut down. It sounds like he shut down and you not having a mother running home and all that and, and not having someone to talk to about it. Yeah. And, and I think as, especially as a kid, how do you process that? Right. When you don't know what questions to ask. And it wasn't really until I got to college till I started thinking about those type of things. I would, I would swim angry. I was angry at my father for never talking about it, angry at God, you know, all those type of things. And I was finally processing my mother's death for the first time and feeling then that depression come over me, being away from home and, and just having that self-discovery where I never really did that growing up because I was too busy swim practice, school, back to swim practice, homework, you know, don't have time to stop. And then in college, I just took a, like a philosophy course and it kind of opened the door. I took a death and dying class and it opened another door to you know, explore my mother's death and, and you know my survival and having survivor's guilt and, and all those type of things. But I, I think you're right. Also, what you said, you know, if if my mother's life was talked about growing up a bit more, I think that would have been a lot helpful uh, to me and my brother instead of never, never being talked about. Yeah. And and. That's sort of like having a relationship when you have memories of her times with your dad and dad held. T- I'm do- I'm saying this for other people who may have been shut down, fathers and mothers with losses, anyone who's had a loss. Sometimes you bring it, them alive that way. And then it and you're able it gives you a safe way to ask questions. Was she funny? Was it hard? The good, the bad, the ugly, whatever it is. And now and then your dad dies, so you can't ask any questions or he wasn't available for the questions. And then you have Dolly. I'm so happy you had Dolly. Now, how do you think your life has been affected by this car crash at at eight weeks, the way your dad processed the loss and how he walked through life? What do you think you had to, I don't want to say overcome, But what have you recognized in yourself that you've had to shift because you were walking through a filter of grief? I think it shifted probably when I was in high school, when I found out it was actually drunk driving, uh, because I obviously knew it was a car crash. But I I went back to my dad's room one day to get his wallet. and Next to his wallet was the press release. And that's when I found out I was drunk driving. And it put me on this mission to never wanting others to go through the same pain. So sort of like back to the future with uh, Marty, Marty McFly was going one way and all of a sudden, you know, he veered his, his life veered off to another you know way. And that's how it kind of felt in terms of this, who was this, who was this huge moment in my life going, 
I could do something about my mother's death or nothing. I could let her death be nothing or try to prevent it from happening. And I couldn't let my mother, my mother's death be for nothing. And that put me on that path, that life purpose, which as we both know, some people never find out what their life purpose is, but mine came at that age. And, and I've been able to change people's lives in terms of uh, trying to prevent impaired driving. The most rewarding audience has been in the last 10 years speaking to DUI offenders and changing their lives so they never do it again. I think if, if and I've thought about this a lot, and actually one time I was speaking in a school in Connecticut, and I took the ferry over to Long Island to, to visit her in the cemetery, and I saw the families in, you know, doing like little league baseball. I thought, man, if my mom was still alive, would that would have, could that have been my life? You know, would I still have, you know, would I've gotten married and have kids and, you know, would we have stayed in New York uh, and grown up, you know, would I, you know, no doubt I probably wouldn't have been a comedian or swimmer or an author, you know, those type of things. Because we both know we, we could say all the what ifs until we're blue in the face. And I've spent more days than I want to remember speak, thinking of, of all the what ifs. And um, it takes up a lot of energy yes. of that. And you know, even not being married or having kids, I think it was talked about growing up because I saw the pain my father went through and I never wanted to experience that. So that because of not processing and never talking about it, I think that's going to be one of my major regrets of not having a family. I mean, I'm 51. You know, I'm not going to start changing diapers now unless they're mine. But, uh, you know, <laughs> you're going to change your old diapers. <laughs> um, I don't know. It was a Hopefully stress. you have a dolly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, now it's a little too late for me, but yeah, it's, um, I think that life purpose is what, you know, that car crash gave me in, in terms of what to do and to make the society a better place, you know, in terms of, or at least hopeful in terms of making a difference. Because I think if you can make a difference in someone's life, that's so powerful. And, you know, through your, through your line of work, helping people through grief, you get one person who can maneuver through it a little bit easier. It feels so good. And it, same thing, it feels so good helping someone realize how precious their life is and not to drive impaired uh, anymore because that decision not only impacts them, but innocent drivers out there. Yes, for sure. And many people know I've been sober for 34 years. So I've heard destru- the destruction of drugs and alcohol. I think my lucky stars that I didn't hurt someone when I was driving while impaired. And I hear stories like yours. I remember hearing about a woman, she was sober for a year. And then she went out back out to drink. She blacked out and she ended up killing someone in a car and doesn't even remember it. And then she went to prison. And for anyone who may be questioning whether you have a drinking problem or something like that, or have gone through something like this, or, you know, experienced what Michael has with a loved one, like, please spread the word and um, get some help, please, for yourself, even if you weren't the drinker. And Michael, what area, because when we talk less, you talked about relationship, why maybe you may not be married and because of the pain your dad went through of the loss. Like I can, I can relate because I, my dad died when I was young and then my mother died when I was young. And I was wondering why I had, I, I'd have relationships. I was married for a short time. I've had other relationships. I was wondering why can't I have a relationship that stands the test of time? And what I realized is that I, in my mind, there you have the right in relationships to be separate, of course, and then you have a right to belong and to be a we. You have both of these things happening and during a relationship, right? Our rights in a relationship. I had this one doctor, a PhD guy who wrote a book on attachment theory on relationships. He said, yes, you have the right to be separate and you have a right to belong and be in a way. He goes, Charlene, you have separate down path. He goes, you don't know how to be in a we and to belong. And what I discovered was I was so independent and I was afraid to get too deep. So I'd be in relation, but we were on two different roads, right? So I thought we would be, you know, okay, we're married, but I wasn't sure Later on, I just saw that, you know what? I don't know how to be in a we. And it's because I was afraid to get too deep, afraid to lose. And I was wondering why when my dad died and my mom was still alive 
that I didn't want to go home. I think I was afraid to get too close to my family because if I lost, I loved too deeply or got too close. I, I don't want to go through the pain of loss because I know it's possible because both my parents died very quickly. And so anyways, any thoughts on that? I very similar to that, because if you get too close and you lose that person, then it devastates you. Right. So, and again, I think it goes back to if my dad talked about the love for his mom, you know, for my mom and all those type of things that probably could have helped. But I think you're right in terms of, well, similar for me, you get too close, you let someone in all the way in, let all the walls down and something happens, then you don't, you just don't want to feel that. So you numb yourself and you kind of go, I'm just not going to experience that. And then that takes work. I thought in going through grief grief counseling after my dad and my aunt passed away, you know, I worked very hard on that. And for the very first time, talking about my mother's death, because my grief counselor, the very first question she said was, let's talk about your mother's death and how that impacted all your relationships. And I was like, I'm not here for that. She's like, oh yeah, yes, yes you are. And uh, so that's, Good for her. And, that's what we, and she was a friend, she is a friend of mine. So I think she knew what buttons to press right away. And she was right for the, and I was 47 years old. And that's the first time really ever to, you know, dive into it and just didn't want to experience that type of loss. And I, and I think I did a pretty good job trying to let the walls down. And then I dated someone who just wasn't the right fit. You know, we were just two, two different extremes in, in terms of our lives as, as well. So it's uh, just waiting that period out now for that next person to come along and, and see what happens. But I'm in no rush at, at this point in time because I think I'm still in that self-discovery, processing everything and getting better. Yeah. And I was thinking too, when you were eight weeks old, you had eight weeks with your mom. hmm hugging you, holding you. And when we talk about like, you've had that experience, even though you don't remember. And then when it's taken away, there's studies that it's like attachment theory stuff or that you remember, but then being ripped away. And then you're probably in a cast as a baby. This stuff is not nothing. And so I love that People are studying this more and more. And I tell people, you know, my life was great, but I knew there was some areas I was like, hmm, how come I can't be like other people that have loved stand the test of time? But I had to do the work and I did the work. And thank God I'm in a relationship now getting married and I feel different. And I went in there as a we and some, you know, and I have my separateness and doing my podcast and my work, but it, it takes, I don't want to say it takes courage, but it's very natural now. And I look at him in a different way, in a way that I'm willing to be heartbroken. If I lost him, we're older, you know, I'm 64, he's 70, even though we're vital and all that. I'm like, I have a sense of appreciation for life after losing and doing the work like the grief recovery method and all this and other things. And I'm so glad you went to your grief counselor. And so how did she open you up? Do you think? Well, I want to go back, backtrack for one second, uh, back to those eight weeks with my mom and, and the, and this research and you're right, because I read that book, uh, what happened to you about the child's trauma and everything else. So after the car crash, I had to be picked up in a pillow. So I lost that physical touch by anyone for a while. And as you know, as a mother's touch and loving, that's huge down the road. So even the loss of that affected me for so many years and and, and so forth. So, but my counselor opened me up because I, and I admitted too ago, because I told my doctor, you know, I didn't want to go on like antidepressants because I go, I'm the problem. I have to solve me and, and do the work. And it was a heavy six months of, you know, the initial therapy. And I worked hard at it because I wanted to improve. I hated the, the the feeling of being depressed all the time. That darkness felt like that warm blanket right out of the dryer. It felt good. I was like, oh, I don't want to leave this. But it affected me on a daily basis where you kind of go, and it's not that I wanted to die. It's just like, I just wanted the pain to stop. And one of the reasons why, probably the main reason why I, I didn't end my life, because I couldn't send Dolly, my brother, back to the cemetery three times in six months. You know, I was thinking about them. I go, look, if I do this, they're the ones holding the bag in terms of why, you know, why didn't he get help and this? That would be devastating to my family. 
to put that through them again. So thinking about others ahead of myself was, was huge. And just doing that work because I felt like, hey, my mother, I always thought my mother sacrificed her life so I could live. I didn't want to end my life prematurely because I'm pretty sure she wouldn't want me to do that either. Even though I've had those days, you're going to go, I wonder what my mother's voice sounds like. You know, as a comedian, I've heard, I've heard many laughs, but the one laugh I never heard was my mom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's hard. And, and you think about that, but I remember the week where I saw my grief counselor, because I didn't think I was going to see the end of the week. And I was like, I have to do something because I can't end it like this. So my counselor, and I'm, and I'm glad I went to a friend of mine because A, I felt more comfortable right away because I've read, you know, it takes 12 to 20 visits before you're comfortable with a counselor. And I'm like, I don't have that type of time, you know? So I felt really comfortable with my counselor and the fact that we could dive into it and, and I wasn't going to BS myself about it because I had to heal or start that healing process. And as I learned, you know, the grief process is ongoing. It's, it's an everyday situation where you find out something new about yourself. Even recently, I, I lost three people within four days in, in February. And I went back to counseling again. And, and I'm glad because I learned, you know, asking for help is that sign of strength, not weakness. Yes. So I'm, I'm not afraid to go back and ask for help going, you know what, I can't do this by myself. I need help. And I think that was a huge moment for me too. And one of the best things I got out of counseling was knowing that it's always there if I need it and, and not to shy away from it. So it, it was, it was a nice process of working hard and having grief appointments and taking out the anger and learning how, you know, go to my happy place and just to kind of relive, you know, or learn how to start living life in, in a different way. Yes. Yeah. And you, you become more you. And more your, it sounds like you're getting rid or dissolving. I don't want to say getting rid, dissolving some of the filters through this grief because it's painful. It's devastating. It's heartbreaking, mm-hmm. especially the loss of your mom and also your dad and these three, four people, three people in the last four months. Yeah. And I was thinking when we were talking before, I'm like, you know, I want to take Michael through the grief recovery method. <laughs> I'll do and it get too. you back here and see how you're doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm all for it because if it's going to help me heal or get better, I'm for anything in terms of that, where, you know, when that blanket comes out, I could kind of put it back in the dryer and go, I, I don't need you and have a different way to, to handle it. Yeah, yeah. It's comforting. It's, it's a, like you said, like this warm blanket coming out of the dryer with some cool smell of some, you know, great, what is that called? Fabric sauce. Oh, bounce. Those, yeah. Those <laughs> yeah. Bounce. Right. You're like, mm, I love passing by homes that have that smell coming out of their dryer. I'm like, Oh, I just love that. So that's, that's beautiful. And I'm just rooting for you. I want, I want you to have what I have today. Not that there's anything wrong with your life, but there's something. I want to take you as one of my um, experiments. <laughs> it's not even an experiment. No, you know why? I think you're the type of person who I always wor- love working with, who's like in it. They're willing to get out of their comfort zone, willing. And people don't get so uncomfortable doing my work or the grief recovery method. Something happens. You don't have to study for it, even though there's, you have to prepare for it and get educated on it but it's about your life. And it's so great because you go through this life graph and all that, which I thought would maybe be hard, but it was such a beautiful experience. I want you to experience it. And I want to go to your wedding (laughs) (laughs) and maybe a child, you know, be part of the, whatever you do in the Jewish religion or whatever you do. But anyways, I want to get to your book and then we got to end our podcast, but it's called the magic of life. You became a comic. And you wrote a book and it was about this life experience. It's like, why? Uh, my friend, Greg Morton, who I met probably my first or second year of doing comedy, made me promise to write the book. He, uh, we're in the show, we're in the sound room of a comedy club called, it was back then it was called Hilarities in, in, in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. And uh, he, he made me promise. He extended his hand and we started to shake hands for the promise and he wasn't letting go until I said, I promise. Cause I was like 20, I was in my late twenties. I'm not going to write a book about my life. No one, no one cares. 
And the showroom manager announced my name because I, I should have been on stage and Greg's not letting go. So finally I said, I promise just for him to let go so I can go on stage and tell jokes. But it took me over 20 years to write it because I'm a procrastinator and I like naps. And it was so much more than I thought it was going to be in terms of that journey. I wrote about you know college and my, and my best friends and losing one of my best friends who was a drunk driver. Um, you know, I talked about, you know, how Dolly became part of the family because it's not only my story, it's her story. And it wasn't until my dad and my aunt passed away in 2018, I went through grief counseling. I went, now I have an ending for my book. Sad as it is, I had to write, you know, write it after, you know, they passed away. But I don't think I could have written it before if I didn't go through that painful journey of grief and, and losing them. Because I don't think I went through or maybe looked at, examined, you know, my process of grief until then. I needed that was that's the catalyst. My aunt, my father passed away, was the catalyst for me to to get off my butt and, and finish it. And it's called the magic of life because that's the name of my program. I, I used to do do magic. So I needed, you know, back when I first started doing the program, I was doing magic tricks in the program to simulate alcohol and you know how dangerous it is for you. And in this kind of state. And then the term of magical life meant something different than when I first started doing the program, because yeah, there is magic in life. We have to see it to, to believe it, right? I mean, it's illusions and this and that. And even though I love doing stand up more than cotton than magic, it, I think it just I just embraced that that meaning in terms of magical life, even though those days where you kind of go, there isn't any, and then you wake up the next day and then someone shows you something beautiful. You kind of go, okay, there is magic in life. Uh, you know, after all that sounded really corny, but I kind of, I kind of like it. <laughs> um, I like corny. And you know what? <laughs> Our words are powerful. Our, you know, magic. If you think oh, I'm going to have a magical day today, right. no matter what it does something. Yeah. And you've acknowledged it's up in your consciousness. It's like I am claim it. Right. Even though you're, if you're in extreme grief, it may not work. But if you're been teetering around like depressed or whatever, just say, I have a magical life. And I tell you, that is powerful. It may not happen overnight, but you may yeah. have some magic moments, even nano moments. And then you just keep building on it. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I told you I was going to throw, maybe throw things at you, ask you questions that, okay. but I was going to say, do you have a little joke or something you say in your stand up? Routine. I have lots of jokes. So I was gonna see what this something I could like a quickie that people go. I yeah, know. this one. This one's pretty quick. Uh, I was watching the newscaster last week uh, talk about the weather here in Northeast Ohio, and he said, "Be careful out there. There's going to be some snowflakes hanging around." And I thought he meant people who get offended too easily. <laughs> that that may that may turn off a lot of your your listeners. I'm sorry. Uh, so, um, but you're but, a comic, right? Yeah, you're like right. my one of my favorites were Don Rickles back in the day, and he oh, was yeah. like slam everybody, and it wasn't right. Yeah, I, I, that's a quick one uh, that I that I came up with. But uh, you know, it's it's that magic. And, and, and to go back to your question about the book, it's amazing because people that I don't even know who bought it, like after the comedy club, they buy it and they read it, and they they'll send me a message or find me on Facebook and tell me how much they connected with it. Again, it's, you know, it, someone said it's like a fireside chat with me. They thought they're just having a conversation with me. And that's great. You know, that's like, how I see the book. I learned yeah. from stories. So that's beautiful. Please get it. The Magic of Life by Michael Gersh and A Sun Story of Hope After Tragedy, Grief and Speedo. As you know, he's a swimmer. And love that. And we'll have all his information out. Anything coming up? Are you doing any comedy clubs? By the time you're out, we'll probably be, we're April now. We'll be probably in May, early June. I might. I mean, I just got done this weekend doing comedy. So I'll have to talk to the owner and see when I can come back again. But if that is just my monthly uh, program at the court talking to DUI offenders. And I'm starting one up for the state of Florida uh, the Florida Safety Council, I'm going to start doing some virtually for their DUI offenders in the Orlando area, too. So I get to start impacting people in Florida and hopefully convince them never to drive impaired again, too. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that what you've experienced in life is helping so many people. And I'm so glad you're on the show. And thank, thank, you. thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Any last words before we sign off? Just have a, a, an awesome day and uh, have fun.
no matter what. Right. And if you're not having fun today because you're in the midst of powerful grief, beautiful grief, and as I said, be in your heart and not in your head. Your intellect is not the grief process. It's something else. When you're in your heart, the grief, quiet the mind, experience your grief in your heart. And if you want to learn how to get in your heart, let me know and read Michael's book. And so glad you're here, Michael. We're going to get you back on again. Okay. And I just think you're amazing. So again, thank you. And everyone, our listeners, thank you so much. Wherever you are in the world, you are so welcome here. I didn't say this at the beginning of the podcast, but this is a come as you are podcast. Be who you are. Write things down. Take a pen and paper if you feel the need and listen to more things about grief recovery, the grief recovery method, um, writing what you did. I know it wasn't easy. I've tried writing a book. I mean, that's in my future too. And it's not nothing. So congratulations on that. So everybody, we'll see you next time. We're on all the podcast platforms. Please subscribe, rate, and review. I love Apple, but we're on all the podcast platforms. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks again, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for joining our Grief Recovery Now journey. Like what you heard? It would be the biggest compliment to our mission if you would please subscribe, rate, and review Grief Recovery Now on Apple Podcasts. And we will keep you posted on our next podcast. If you don't have Apple, we are also on Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Also, please join our private Facebook group, Grief Recovery Now. And if you are in need of any personal attention, please contact me with the link on this podcast page, which is griefrecoverymethod.com forward slash GRMS forward slash Charlene. Dash Gorzella. It would be an honor to hear from you.